The following is a different kind of conversation for us at NJ Spotlight News. It's part of a podcast project with the goal of helping us better understand how faith intersects with and influences our world. It's generously supported by the Lemberg Foundation. As the conflict between Israel and Hamas continues in the Middle East, it can be difficult to know how to process the news. My guests today are two faith leaders who were also co-hosts of NJPBS's previous program, A Matter of Faith. I've asked them to join us for a conversation today that goes deeper than the headlines. We'll get their insights from a spiritual perspective on how we can process our grief, navigate emotions like anger and fear, and participate meaningfully in our communities during times of crisis. Imam Dean Sharif is the Imam at Masjid Wadatuddin and convener of the Council of Imams in New Jersey. Rabbi Matt Gewertz is senior rabbi of Congregation Benai Jasharon. Rabbi and Imam, thank you so much for joining me today. First, I'd just like to hear from both of you because many of us turn to our faith in times of crisis. And I'd like to ask each of you how you are processing this trauma. Imam, I'll begin with you. With empathy and with respect to the number of people that are affected by the tragedy, I'm listening to them. And my hope is that I can give them some consolation in regard to hope. You know, there there are many verses in the Quran that talk about do not lose hope despite the fact that you may be going through difficulties or trials and tribulations, but always remember the mercy of Almighty God is there. Some of the members of the community that I've spoken to have lost in the neighborhood of 10 to 25 members of their family, and some of this is in one day. And so these are things that it's kind of hard to really grasp you know, the magnitude of despair that sometimes can come across. But what I've learned is that the individuals that I've spoken to, their faith pulls them through. There is a saying of Muhammad the Prophet that the community of Muslims is like, you know, a, a body. And when one element of the body is feeling pain, the whole body is suffering from it. So when they sense that the, the remainder of the members of the community are sensing their loss, feeling their loss, and showing their compassion with them, I think it's, it's important for them to get through the difficult periods. Rabbi Gewertz, are you processing this? Are you able to? And I wonder if it's changed since you made your visit to Israel. There's a famous rabbi who died last spring named uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner. And he said the, the job should never be to actually try to find words for something as devastating as this, uh, but presence is what counts. So we spent a, a lot of time at first just gathering, uh, not necessarily offering wisdom, sometimes just holding each other, uh, singing, praying, uh, processing together. And it's just now that we're beginning to have thoughts about what actually happened. And being in Israel, counterintuitively helped me. So it wasn't something I saw through a television lens, but I saw it through my own lens. I wonder what it looks like for you personally right now to be practicing your faith. And if you could give us some examples of what that looks like. I feel like the first month I had no idea what I was actually feeling. And, uh, you know, there's a 
mourning period for Jews that says you can't even think straight for 30 days. And I think it took me 30 days just to sort of get real thoughts that could be articulated, that could be felt completely. And uh, I was on a television show, I don't know, a couple of weeks back, and somehow something in the interaction didn't sit right with me. And I went home and my wife said, what's wrong? She said, did it not go well? I said, no, the, the television appearance went fine, but it finally hit me what it, what it has been that I've been talking about. And, you know, I lived in Israel uh, at 17 to 18, a really formative time of life. And let's just put, you know, theology, Zionism, religion aside. While this is happening, I realized that my own roots are shaking. I almost feel like I did when my parents passed that something that gave me life was no longer there. And I felt existentially that uh, Israel's life is up for grabs. And that meant that perhaps mine is or was as well. That's been the overwhelming part of it. And I feel existentially tied to this crisis in ways that I didn't understand before. Imam, does that ring true for you? And what does practicing your faith personally, I'm not talking about when you're before your worshipers, what does it look like? It's sobering because this particular experience um, with Israel and Palestine reminds me of the struggle of my ancestors. And it's very difficult to judge what a person may do if they are suffering from oppression for long periods of time. Of course, I'm leading sometimes people in prayer. But then when I'm at home, I'm performing my prayers individually or with my family, right, and with my wife sometimes. So it's these moments are the moments when you have to kind of pull yourself together and ask Almighty God to give you a sense of understanding that perhaps you didn't have before. You know, I tell people all the time that, yes, prayer is you're expressing yourself and you're, you're communicating to God. But always remember, God is communicating to you, too. So you have to listen also as well as speak. You know, Dean uh, and I and Mark Beckwith, who's a, a retired bishop, it must be 10 years ago now, mm -hmm. we led 10 Christians, 10 Jews, and 10 Muslims to Israel, Palestinian territories, Palestine. We have to call it what we all need to call it. And mm -hmm. it was a really intense trip that was uh, very rich, but also uh, rich with conflict. And, got uh, heated at times. So? It got how heated, so? right? It got well, heated at I mean, times. We, we, here we were walking the walk of these places that whose territory is disputed. But what I remember so beautifully about Dean was he taught me a verse that I never forgot, and he said, "Matthew, the Quran says, and I hope I get this right because I've quoted this many times, in the midst of conflict, when you're really deep in it, then you can find relief, but not until you really." make yourself as present as possible in the conflict, which is counterintuitive, then you find relief. So that kind of goes back to what you were saying before. You had to sit in it and sit in all that was around you to see it more clearly, to be more clear-eyed. Which is the last thing that the human being intuitively would want to do. We want right. to push it away. Of course. And no human being wants to really experience pain. However, pain is also a mercy because it permits you to feel something that perhaps may be a cure. And unfortunately, the global world that we're living in today is losing a lot of its humanity. And sometimes it's tragedies like this that have to bring people back 
to a consciousness that, yes, we're different ethnic groups. Yes, we're different faiths. Yes, we're different races. But the reality is we're part of this human family. And we need to start respecting that human family a little bit more than what we are. I'm thinking about this friendship and, and if I can call it a brotherhood, that you both have. And, I mean, you have such a love for one another. And there's so many folks who feel so far apart right now. Do you take some of that into your role in guiding your uh, congregations work, through this? Love, love is work. You know mm. that. Love is work. Right. And, and, and I think the relationship that Matthew and I have, we had to work on it. And we're still working on it. Right. Our views don't necessarily always match. But we need to sit and we need to discuss the differences that we have. And perhaps there may be an understanding that we can derive because of our relationship with each other, that we can share with someone else that may not have the opportunity to exchange the same kind of thought processes that we're able to do because we have a certain friendship with each other. It's important for me to listen to Matthew hear what he has to say about the situation, and then process that so I can relate that to some of the Palestinian brothers and sisters that I know are suffering from losses. And the noise is loud. So uh, people feel like the stakes are high, and the Jewish community, uh, for better or for worse, for truth or not, feel like the world is against them, that, uh, that perhaps there's been anti-Semitism that's been hidden underneath the surface that's now permitted to come forth. And what happens in those moments is that communities become isolated because that's what you do in fear. So my line has been over and over again since the day after the war is that we may be terrified, but we cannot be paralyzed. And we are, we're working through it, but we're working. Dean's right. Love is not something that is just uh, la-di-da. It doesn't work that way. In talking about this, these courageous conversations that need to be had. And I am sure that the talks you've had have not been easy. So how do you counsel folks who do feel isolated, who are perhaps grieving differently than their immediate family, or perhaps even from their entire congregation? I think what I've experienced from conversations that I've had with Palestinians who have lost loved ones is not so much anger but the grief, as well as the frustration. And I think it's important for me to just highlight the, the fact that when I talk to Palestinians, this, this situation that we're talking about today has been something that they have been struggling with for 75 years. It's not something new, right? Now, I'm a descendant of Africans who were enslaved. So I may not know what it feels like to be in Gaza, but I do know what it feels like to be ostracized. So for me, it's a process of me listening and at the same time empathizing with the struggle. As a white man in America, I don't know what that feels like. And I want to say that loud and clear. And uh, it was a wonderful historian in Newark named Clem Price and Clem used to say to me, we're both not loved by lots of people in this world, but 
you get to hide it when you want to. He actually put it much more beautifully than I just did. But you, you understand my point. And I know him, so I, I, so I can imagine Clem. this conversation. Yeah. Well, I had it as a kid a bit. I faced some anti-Semitism. But it's only now where members of my congregation will say to me, you know, I don't think I'm going to wear my Star of David on my chest when I go into the city because there are random beatings that are taking place and uh, all kinds of hatred being spewed. So in some ways we've been hidden from it. On other fronts, we've confronted it for years, but started to feel that we were more comfortable than we should have been. You touched on something, Rabbi, that I, I did want to get to, which is we have seen a rise in hate, violence, threats against both Muslims Jews in America, in New Jersey. So if your worshipers aren't feeling safe, how are you helping them to navigate that if if they don't feel comfortable coming to synagogue? It's the one place I would say they do feel comfortable. Since the war, we have 800 people who come every Friday night, and they tell me that the one place they know that they're not going to be attacked is in the synagogue. And that doesn't necessarily mean physically I mean, they're not going to walk around having names called. No one's going to question their faith, their their ability to exist. It's true, we have security, and security costs have gone up exponentially. And we were, I'm not even sure if I told you this, Dean, the night before Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, we were swatted. We had a bomb threat, and we all had to leave eight minutes into services. Mm. So are we safe? Probably not completely, but existentially, emotionally, spiritually, no one feels safer than they do in the synagogue with other Jews right now. I even had to think about, you know, whether I wanted to wear this kufi, you know, today. In light of the fact, of course, that the three Muslim men that were killed, was shot at in Vermont yes. were wearing kafayas, right, which is a Palestinian scarf, right? And they were identified as a, as a result of wearing that scarf. The same thing is true with the kufi, when the yarmulke as well. Yep. So... For the first time, I had to think about, you know, whether or not I was going to wear the kufi. I said, I'm going to wear the kufi because that's just something that I traditionally wear. And he knows that I I wear the kufi most of the time. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Well, this is not 1933. This is 2023. Right. I used to say, show it with all pride, loud and proud. But now I say, well, if you go into the city, perhaps you should be a little bit more careful. And I, I, I cannot even believe I'm uttering those words to you right now. And Dean, what you just said before... Your America, in some ways, has still not been the place where it needs to be. Right. And uh, and again, as Clem Price said, it's because of our hue. They probably hate us just the same. But what's happened is they've set us up to hate each other. And in the Jewish community, I'll sort of take responsibility for this, we're doing a horrible job at taking care of each other because we're being duped by politicians who are interested in their own power, who set us up against each other to tell us which party actually loves us more, or will stick up for Israel more. And um, that's just a power grab. I'm not saying there aren't extraordinary leaders who are doing extraordinary things for us, but I've come to trust politicians less and less as I get older. Which is the importance of having faith leaders to remind people that the best place for them to get the advice that they need, particularly in situations like this, is for the Jewish person to consult their Torah for the Christian to consult their gospel, for the Muslim to consult their Quran, and let God speak to them as opposed to following the words of a politician 
who is attempting to use their emotions so that they can stay in power. And I, I tell people all the time, I say, the greatest power that you can exercise is when you can fall on your knees and ask Almighty God to give you an understanding of what's happening in your life so that you can stand back up again. You and I have both discussed over the years that, A, uh, we owe nothing, God does. So uh, one of the great lines that we found in the Middle East was, I don't know why it is you think you have a right to tell me or tell you that this land is mine or yours, because it's neither of ours, it's God's. And if you're really a person of faith, you both turn in that direction. But we're so black and white that we don't do that anymore. And, and that's the unfortunate, the, the extremes are what are driving people to do irrational things and do things against their own faith. So we have to kind of bring people back to this middle How path. How do you do that, though? If someone dis you disagree with, you're having a conversation um, and you care about that person deeply and you disagree with them, how do you approach that conversation and is it worth the effort? I, listen, I think that it's worth the effort unless people cross red lines. And what does that mean? That means if you want to kill me, I'm not interested in a conversation with you. If you think I don't have the right to exist, I'm not interested. And I could go to a few more, but you understand the point. But after that, there's a lot of ways in between to talk. So what happens first? I ask someone about their history. Tell me about you. And then I want to tell them about me. So once we get to know each other a little bit more, it becomes a little bit harder to want to hurt each other. And then I ask them their opinion and I listen to it without a rebuttal in my mind, meaning I'm listening to it well enough. It's almost like couples therapy, yeah. which you then have to then repeat back what they said. And once I've done that, I'm then ready to share my opinion. And in the end, generally, we have certain shared values where we can find common ground. And I actually believe that about this conflict, if you remove the fringe fundamentalists from their equation. I do believe, as angry as I've been, as resentful, as fearful as I've been, that everyday people would rather live side by side in peace if they have food to eat, people to marry, places for them to send their kids to school, et cetera, et cetera. But when we're pushed by the fringes and we see people beheaded in front of us, raped in front of us, all the horrible things that have happened, it makes you go way into the corner with the fringe. And now it's our job to sort of bring everyone out of the shadows again. What about others who want to be an ally? I'm a white Christian woman. What can I do to be a better ally and to help my Muslim and Jewish neighbors feel safer? I think it's important to know a little bit more about what is causing the strife. And when we look deeper into the situation, I think that's when we can gain an understanding of both parties, right? And, and we can perhaps balance out our biases a little better as a result of having more knowledge. If we're just going to react, if we're just going to gauge our response on the basis of our emotions, then usually we're going to gauge our emotions on the side that we think that we're a part of. You know, there's a verse in the Quran that says, be just, it is next to piety. You know, you can't really get to piety until you really have a sense of justice within yourself and you exhibit that justice with other people. 
then you can truly say that you have a sense of piety and you have a sense of regardfulness for Almighty God. If you can't, if you don't, if you can't be merciful to a person, what makes you think that you're deserving of mercy from God? See, that last part is what I would suggest that we do first. Mm-hmm. That uh like when you just told me that a member of your congregation is connected to someone who lost 10 or 15 members of their family and perhaps in one day, my heart broke. Before I saw anything else, I, was, I, I didn't know who they were. I don't know how it happened, but my heart broke. And I do think that it's important for allies to feel each other's pain before we get to the part where we start measuring 75 years of history because there are absolutely at least two narratives. There's probably mm-hmm. many more. But... What I needed in those first couple of days was someone to hold me because I was so scared and I was so bewildered by what happened, not because my pain or my blood is worth any more than anyone else's, but that day it was Jewish-Israeli blood and I just wanted to be held. And I still think that there are people dying every day, obviously. So before we get to the argument, we have to get to the empathy and someone to say, boy, that must have been a really horrible time for you. Can you tell me about it? And just be quiet after that, like when someone dies in your family. Last thing I want is more bagels, which is everyone thinks is the Jewish answer. Let's fill up the place with food. I don't want uh, platitudes, you know, thing, like with time it will get better. No, it's not better. Like it hurts right now. And I do really think that that's what we need on both sides for our allies to do, because if we're not comforted, we're not going to have any conversations of worth either. How do you maintain the ability to stay engaged over what is a very long struggle? The way I stay engaged is through my sense of debt that I owe. You know, the word Dean, which is my name, right? It comes from a root word meaning debt. Debt to who? My understanding of that word means that it's a debt to God that by virtue of him creating me, that I have a duty, an obligation to serve out this life in the manner that he has prescribed for me to serve it. I think the reason why we have scripture is to give us that guidance that we need sometimes that is not necessarily innate, but it has to come from revelation. You know, the human being is an intelligent creature, but we don't have all the answers, which is the reason why we have messengers and prophets. And I think the more we can genuinely and honestly and sincerely read what's in the revelations from God, the more we're able to understand the trials and tribulations that come with life. But when a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim uses those same words and screams, I love God or God is great, while doing something that is inhumane, then yeah, but we see, have work to do. There's other Muslims that know that that, that application is and incorrect. And Jews and Christians also. Right, no, right, right. But what I'm saying is that here we are saying, and I obviously agree with you, I mean, the, the Torah is my well of comfort. The last thing I have ever read in a, in a Torah or a Quran or a gospel but, is giving permission he, to kill. But they don't have permission. Of course, it's their ego. Their, 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 their ego is perverting yeah. justice. I think you're both saying right, right. the same thing, right. we are. actually. I want to ask you, as we come to a close here, obviously it's incredibly difficult to think about initial stages of, of grieving and healing 
when this conflict is still unfolding, but what does your faith teach you about reconciliation and healing? Jewish faith is better defined in Hebrew than in English. In English, faith is a noun. In Hebrew, it's a verb. So when you say, I faith something, again, you can't say that in English, you can in Hebrew, it means I believe that it's true, even though I have doubts that it's possible. And that's why my faith works for me, because I totally believe as I'm standing here and I feel closer to Dean now than I did an hour ago, that because of our relationship, that other relationships can come to fruition in the same way. And yet, when I walk out of here and I check my iPhone to see what's the latest is from the Middle East, I have unbelievable doubt that it's possible. And the mixture of those two things are my faith, which I think will end up uh, growing into seeds of peace, or the seeds of peace will grow into something that will bring us together. And um, so every day I, I balance both of those things. And I encourage my congregation to as well, because to make believe it's going to be okay, it's not. To kill each other, it's not going to solve it either. To have doubts and belief mixed together in a healthy way, I think does give us a chance. You know, the, the Quran says that Muhammad the prophet, prayers and peace be upon him, is a mercy to the worlds. He didn't say just a mercy to Muslims. He said that he was a mercy to the worlds. And we're told that our character is supposed to reflect Muhammad the prophet's character, prayers and peace be upon him. So as we go through these trials in human life, in human experience, my view is that going back to what I said earlier, we have to constantly reflect back on the words that we've been given to guide us through the good and the bad times. With your permission, I'd like to quote something that I read today Please. from my email. He says, after you've searched the scriptures, the Torah, the gospel, and the Quran, he says, search them and conform to the best of your books and make it possible for all to live in God's peace on shared freedom space. I'm going to repeat that. On shared freedom space. Recognize each other's rights and duties. Build for the good of oneself, the good of one's neighbor, and the good of the whole of humanity on this earth. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation. Imam, Rabbi, I thank you both this wasn't easy. I do hope that it offers others a path to begin some of these really difficult conversations and courageous conversations. Thank you to you both. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. This podcast is a production of NJ Spotlight News. James Kraft is the executive producer. Noelle Deal Hardeveld is the creative consultant. Our producer is Trisha Bobita. Mark Nixdorf is our audio engineer. Our mix engineer is Andrew Vastola. Art for the project was created by Carla Cucinata. Our production manager is Chloe Motisi. 
The Associate Director of Production and Studio Operations is Tijuana Romero, and our Executive in Charge of Production is Joe Lee. This program was made possible by support from the Lemberg Foundation.